Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. I'm delighted to be joined today by Anthony Millett, who co-leads Global Capital at Antler Group, where he has been since 2019. Initially, he co-led the establishment of Antler's Australia-New Zealand operation, which operates out of Sydney. Antler enables exceptional founders to start great businesses. Prior to Antler, he was the CEO of Fintech BrickX, which allows Australians to invest fractionally into residential real estate. And before that, he successfully built, scaled and led the transformation of Active Instinct from a single high street store to become a leading global online sports retailer and multi-channel operator. So Anthony, thank you for joining the show today. Thanks very much for having me. Excited to be here. I want to start with um, a period of your life where you, you left the career I suspect you'd always desired and went to rescue the family. Maybe we can start there. Yeah, so this is um, when I joined the family business in 2008. And interesting that you mentioned the career that I'd potentially already desired. I'd been working in investment banking for four years. Um, And after four years of being in that environment, working within the tech practice, um, I actually worked out that I was more inspired by my entrepreneurial clients than I was by uh, the people necessarily up the food chain within the bank. Um, So I was really starting to think about what could be next. And along came, um, I guess, a bittersweet opportunity where um, we had the family business. It was a sports store in Northwest London that had been uh, running for 25 years. I was starting into starting to get into um, a, a bit of trouble. Um, we were seeing the demise of the high street. Um, we'd started to go online, but kind of costs were going out of control. And I'd seen the rise of e-commerce. I'd worked with a number of e-commerce companies in my investment banking career, um, and thought this is a great opportunity to go in, uh, try and build something of scale, um, and I guess at the same time save um, save the business from from a, a pretty poor outcome. I probably say that quite unemotionally now, but I remember back to that point in time um, and it was um, incredibly emotional. It was a very hard decision to leave um, what on the outside looked like a pretty illustrious career. Um, I'd move very quickly through that um, through that industry, um, but, but felt that I had probably a, a higher calling or a yearning to do something different. So your business was under pressure, the family business was under pressure, but I'm sure your, your parents would never have imagined that you would go to become a global online retailer or something. So can you maybe talk about some of the questions or or conversations you had at that time and how you maybe grabbed the bull by the horns? Yeah. I mean, when we say under pressure, I mean, just to put it in context, I think we were probably 10 days away from running out of cash. So um, that's a level of pressure that, you know, you have to make very quick (laughs) decisions. And um, pretty much from finding that out and overnight, I decided I was going to leave my uh, my banking career um, and and join the family and see the family business and see how we could turn this around. Um, and um, ultimately, it was a great outcome, and we'll go into that shortly. But I just remember um, probably the first you know year of that journey, um, almost kind of um, whether it was inwardsly or outwardsly, sobbing to myself on the on the drive to work every day, going, "What the hell have I done? Quitting this, you know, this this pretty um, this pretty cool job in the city to a situation where I'm now driving to a warehouse on the outskirts of Northwest London, um, trying to turn this thing around." Um, and, and I think the first kind of thing that came out of that, that if I reflect on, was that I can see consistently through 
my career is um, I'm very good at putting myself into situations where I don't think too much about how hard the job to be done is or what the journey will be, but I can envisage an outcome um, and have belief that that outcome can be achieved and then start to kind of organize um, the various building blocks into, into order to start to move towards that. Um, and, and so ultimately what we did with that business, I mean, in a, in a nutshell is when, when we joined it, there were probably seven or eight people. Um, there was a website that was barely functional that was probably, um, selling three to five orders a day or com- uh, delivering, you know, completing three to five orders a day. And this is like Tottenham Hotspur strips or something. Isn't this it? Is, yeah. And tennis rackets and table tennis tables and all the, all the good stuff that high street store, um, the good old high street sports stores used to sell. Um, and, um, and we, we ultimately grew it over five years into a business that was sen- uh, selling, um, completing about a million orders um, a year, launched it into nine countries um, and kind of interestingly grew it out of this one small sports store as well. So we never increased the um, the footprint. Um, and, and that journey was amazing. There were many highs. There were a lot of lows, um, a lot of kind of near terminal misses. You know, one I remember when the MasterCard representative turned up and said that we, uh, he believed that we'd been um, facilitating online fraud. Right. Um, and of course, we hadn't been facilitating it other than we kind of observed that actually maybe our, our platform might have been hacked at some stage. And these are all kind of terminal things where you go, wow, I'm not sure we're going to exist tomorrow. Another one where our credit insurance was pulled because of the GFC. Um, but we got through it. We persisted, um, hired a wonderful team, really leveraged technology. That was really where I learned about technology um, and and created um, created a great outcome. So you talked about being so being able to see the outcome. Did you did you have a model in mind? Was there something you were trying to mimic, copy, or did you just where, where did it come from? Where did the vision come from? Yeah, there was a, a back in two thousand and seven. Um, there was a, a a fairly pioneering e-commerce website called Wiggle.com, which was um, more focused on the cycle category, um, and we had um, access to all sports equipment in pretty much every other category. And to be able to envisage that and see what was being done and think, well, hang on, I can do this. How hard can this be? Um, you know, gave me great confidence that that's something that we should go and do. Now, of course, it ended up being a lot harder than I envisaged yeah. it, could, <laughs> it, could, it could be. Um, but but I think to be able to attach yourself to a vision of what it is that you're trying to do, create your North Star and work towards that, I find, um, you know, a highly effective tool for moving towards your goals. There's a lot of research that suggests that, you know, family run businesses in many ways can be, can take a longer term perspective than other businesses. But at the same time, you're saying you were 10 days away from bankruptcy. So it may not quite, quite reconcile. So maybe more interesting is to sort of think about the, the dynamic within, within your family coming in as a, I guess it's someone in your twenties with limited experience and dealing with a parents who'd worked in this for their, their entire careers. Can we just sort of explore that? human or, or family dynamic that, that that was generated? Yeah, it was extremely difficult. I mean, there was a lot of guilt that went around. I think um, guilt on my part to the, to the fact that I was potentially displacing um, my father and some of the things that he'd been doing in this business, um, guilt on his part and, and my mother's part to the fact that, you know, they felt that I'd had to quit this 
you know, very exciting career, which, you know, I, despite me telling them I was very happy to quit it, yeah. felt that that wasn't the the, the truth. Um, and, it, and then I think a lot of guilt and frustration around the situation that we found ourselves in as to how this all came together and came to be with really very little planning and just a, a bit of an impulsive um, decision or set of set of situations. Um, I, I think the the underlying dynamic through the first couple of years was very, very challenging. Um, you know, I think that this was a business that my father had run for um, 25 years or so before I joined. So there was a lot of um, entrenched beliefs on how things should be done. Um, and, um, and, and that was his, this was his business. Um, in terms of how do we actually create an organization that isn't about six people, but, you know, can 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 operate with multiple, you know, multi-hundred people um operating within it and, and generate scale and the ability to, you know, for all of us to learn that we can't be across all of the details all of the time and how do we create systems, processes and and build trust um within the organization to be able to get things done and create that leverage. Um so it was very hard. There were a lot of very heated moments, a lot of kind of telling people to withdraw from areas that they were um, in and and probably myself as well, probably overstepping the mark in certain areas as we were trying to work things out. But I remember that deep down, the thing that kind of kept us going and kept us fully aligned was that, uh, and I don't know if this is probably not the same for all family businesses, but within our business, there was absolute alignment on we were in this together and we were all going to achieve a great outcome together. And there was no politics. There was no ulterior motive. Um, there was a lot of family love, despite the day-to-day challenges, frustrations, arguments, you know, storming out of the offices that may have happened in the early days. Um, and that just absolute alignment of knowing that everyone had the same outcome, uh, everyone wanted the same um, to achieve the same things, and no one was doing dis- something despite someone else just just meant that it was a a highly emotional challenging environment but not political obviously you said your dad was in this for 25 years when were you sort of first or what did the sports store mean to you as a as a young kid yeah it's quite funny so i i grew up really being around this sports store and that might you know sound amazing growing it was amazing as a kid growing up you know i was definitely the all the gear and no idea <laughs> um, uh, person that you know always had the latest tennis racket or the latest cricket bat but it was pretty average at sport to be fair <laughs> um but it meant that you know from the age of um from the age of 7 or 8 i would be spending a few hours at the weekend in the store helping out in the storeroom or whatever 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 it was that i was you know task that i was given um which meant that it kind of became second nature to me to kind of um i, I guess be exposed to or think about um commerce um think about entrepreneurship um get my kind of head around business you know pretty basic business concepts quite early on um then by the age of, I think it was 14, um, during school holidays, my parents decided I was old enough to kind of run the store and run all of the staff, you know, <laughs> you know two times, three times more my senior um, while they went away and, and fully entrusted me with that and gave me that responsibility and accountability. Um, and um, I, I guess from a young age, I, this this store was much more than just a, a, a place of work. It was, you know, it, it was where... Um, you know, where it it meant everything to our family. Um, 
But at the same time, it wasn't the future that my parents envisaged for me and my two younger brothers. And they worked incredibly hard to make sure that we would, you know, could go to university. We were the first people of our generation within our family to go to university, get good careers, um, and, and obviously come out and do things that, you know, they felt would give us a higher quality of life than, than they, as we, I think we all do for our children. Um, so when it kind of got to the fact that I said, Hey, I'm actually going to quit my investment banking role and come and take over this business, which was still 95% predominantly done for a store. Um, I, I think I was probably as much in disbelief as they were that this was even kind of being contemplated. Um, but it was, you know, it had a, it had a deeper meaning for me than just, oh, this is a project to be done. This is, you know, this is an opportunity to build on something that I've been a part of for, for a while, even though I never thought that that would happen. So you've been given exposure to this at, at 14. Most people go to uni to learn about something like commerce or whatever and, and almost get their first exposure to business. So was university boring? Um, it might have been boring if I'd gone to the lectures. <laughs> um, look, again, I think it probably ties into this um, sign up to something, envisage what the outcome might be, but not really think too much about the journey. And my, I went to study a, a, a career um, or a course called Money Banking and Finance, which might sound quite exotic, but it was really just a glorified economics course. And um, I, I remember, <laughs> I remember finding out towards the end of the first year that our course actually had the highest dropout rate of all of the courses at university, right. um, and people flicked to you know move to accounting or commerce or less challenging courses. Um, and I never really had an appreciation for quite how hard a course was until I started revising about two weeks before the exams at the end of the year and started to look at the material for the first time. Um, and, and I actually did spend most of my, um, certainly the first couple of years at university, um, being entrepreneurial, building businesses, um, you know, nothing compared to, compared to what people are building these days from university with the availability of tech and, and, and the kind of global reach it can have. Um, it was nothing that extravagant, but it, you know, it started with thinking about, um, you know, needed to get a job at uni. A friend of mine was flyering, a friend of mine from the year above was flyering the halls of residence with flyers for the nightclub said, Hey, come and help me. Or will you cover me one day? I thought, okay, this is pretty easy. I can walk around for three hours and get paid whatever it was, probably four pounds an hour. Um, and then thought, hang on a second, as I'm putting these flyers under doors, I'm finding all these other flyers. Well, why don't I go and get sign up 15 different clubs, get them all to pay me to fly all of the halls of residence, and then I'll just you know go and deliver five flyers at a time or 10 flyers at a time. And then you very quickly work out, well, hang on a second, if I'm getting 400 pounds a week, why am I doing this myself? Why don't I just pay someone else 50 pounds a week and get paid 350 pounds a week for storing flyers in my bedroom? Um, so I guess that, you know, although that was a very analog yeah. kind of example of the kind of things that I, I think I was thinking about at the age of um, 18, um, I've always kind of thought about how can I get leverage and do things on a bigger scale yeah. um, with, with a view that, you know, you, you, you're not going to, I, I don't think you're necessarily going to have a totally enriched life by being um, a salaried person with fixed upside. I think if you want to create great impact and have the time to be able to do a number of these things, you've got to think about leverage. Well, maybe that's a good place to sort of jump off and, and look at what you're doing today. Because today you are, I think in, in, in your words, you are building the world's largest company builder. So um, maybe start, just talk a little bit about what, what you're doing at Antler and, and what the significance of that is to the, to the global ecosystem, if you like. Yeah, so Antler started um, four years ago 
um, by uh, my colleague and 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 founder of Antler, a guy called Magnus Grimland, who built um, one of the largest um, tech e-commerce businesses um, out of Southeast Asia um, and and exited it in um, 2017, um, called Zalora, uh, which um, was equivalent of like the iconic here in Australia. And um, while Magnus was building that company and similar to the the trends that I saw through building um, our sports e-commerce business and then my subsequent business, BrickX, here in in Australia, is that um, as as we were building these businesses, um, the the real growth engines and the people that were really creating a lot of a transformational change were not necessarily us, but it was the, the second and third lines of management and exceptional people that we were bringing in. And they were really learning on the job. They had really great growth mindsets. Um, we were obviously encouraging them and they were creating great outcomes for us, but they were also learning about how to be entrepreneurs themselves, how to build high growth, build high growth tech businesses. And we often see a lot, saw a lot of those people um, leave our businesses and go and found their own businesses, some of which we had the opportunity to invest in and others we didn't, um, some which we invested in and some which we didn't as well. Um, and then also we, we, we saw within our organizations, a lot of exceptionally talented people that we thought were capable of building really large global, um, you know, high impact businesses that didn't necessarily have the, um, the, the, the means or the resources, um, to be able to quit their job and, and, and go and build a business tomorrow. And that could be everything from didn't have the right co-founder or a co-founder, um, had an idea, but weren't sure if it was worth pursuing or not, didn't know how to raise capital, didn't have sufficient financial wealth or networks. And so what Antler um, set out to do was really go and find the world's most talented people. Um, and we're, uh, Well, we set out to do this in Singapore to start with, or Magnus did. So I, I think our, our vision has become bigger and, and bolder quite rapidly, but set out to find the most talented people within a region bring them together, help them form really strong, collaborative, complementary co-founding teams, help them validate the best of their ideas and coalesce around them, and then invest in the very best of those opportunities and then help support them grow and and and, and on a local basis and a global basis um, through coaching, access to advisors, access to further rounds of capital, um, access to customers. Um, and and helping them hire their teams. Look, ultimately, if, if you're if you're if you're a founder and you're about to go on a, a on a journey to build a company, I think if you're serious about building something of scale and and, and tremendous impact, you know this is going to be a five to ten year journey. And you you know the best thing that you can do from day one is make sure you've got really solid foundations within your organization, and that is the team that are starting it. You and your co-founder. That's making sure that what you're working on is really worth working on. And it's a good use of your time. Um, and we create an environment where last year we had fifty thousand people apply to build a business with us. We brought the top fifteen hundred people into our environments around the world. We're in twenty three cities now, and we spent you know we spent twelve weeks with them, but they spent twelve weeks with each other in what is probably the most fertile environment for finding an exceptional co-founder to go and build a business with. That's the top 3% of people around the world that we've selected. And then we end up backing the top 1%. And so um, it's an incredible environment that really um, turbocharges someone's trajectory. Uh, And we like to think of ourselves as really being the biggest unfair advantage um, on on, on that journey with them in partnership with them. So, so, so I look look back at the journey you you described, and and I guess I have two questions. One one is, are you born an entrepreneur? Because you were fortunate enough to be surrounded by commerce, if you like, from a very young age. And and the second thing is, you know, had this existed when you were 
21 and coming out of uni, would, would this be, would this have seduced you away from investment banking as a, as a starting point? So they're probably wrapped together, but I'm just interested in your thoughts. I've definitely changed my mind on that first question. Are you born an entrepreneur? Um, if you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I'd have probably said, um, Yes. Or it's environmental. Like, what have you been exposed to? Was it because at the young age, I was exposed to all of that stuff that I am how I am? Um, but I think what we're seeing, right, and we're seeing this across the world, is that the the second and third line and fourth line of management of the unicorns of today and yesterday and tomorrow, your Canvas and your Atlassians here, your Spotify's in Stockholm, um, you know, your your you know, even Shopify's in Canada and Toronto, et cetera. I mean, the people that have gone into that, not necessarily being overly entrepreneurial, but have spent three to four years in their environment, come out incredibly entrepreneurial. They've got incredible growth mindsets. They've got a, a track record of what needs to be done. They've been on that journey. Um, and, you know, I think there are so many playbooks written now. There's not really, you know, the, the growth hacking used to be a dark art. Now, you know, there are playbooks and all of these things. Yes. That actually, I, I I think I've probably changed my mind on that, that um, you, I don't think that you necessarily have to be born an entrepreneur to be an entrepreneur. Um, but I do think that entrepreneurs do have consistent traits. And I think why people have those traits are really important. And we spend a lot of time through that 12 weeks that we spend with the teams, understanding why is someone so driven? Why are they so tenacious? Why when they get punched in the gut every single day and they hit brick walls, are they going to get up and keep going? Why Why does this matter so much to them? Like, what is their, like, you know, what is their deep, irrational um, reason for, 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 for keep, keeping, you know, for, for, for keeping going when others would quit? Um, and that can be very different, right? That cannot be just about a business experience. That can be about a traumatic time in someone's childhood that something's really important for them to achieve. Yes. It could be about a competitive situation that they may have been in historically where they didn't come out on top. And so now they want something even more. Yes. Um, and, and so I think people are quite individual. And I think that by removing the bias of pre predetermining what we think an entrepreneur looks like and actually more spending time with people and understanding their why um, gives us um, you know, a, a huge advantage in terms of how we think about building companies and the access to talent that we get that is overlooked by traditional um, investing communities. Um, but it also is just incredibly pleasurable because we're 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 enabling and empowering incredible people that otherwise may not get access to these kind of opportunities to to create such change and have such impact for themselves and others. So as you've done this now for what three four years, you've probably seen people succeed and you've seen people fail if you like through through the or, or not succeed through the process that you run are you refining your understanding of what that where that tenacity comes from or that early these dry you know does does grit i think as you describe it change like what, what? i think we're i think we're being um i think we're becoming much better at recognizing the traits that really work like there was definitely some early early learnings where we made decisions that we look back and go, wow, we shouldn't have made that decision. Um, I think one is where um, we gave benefit of doubt to the founders because we really loved an idea. And although we found the, thought the founding team were maybe um, you know, good, but not great, we felt that the idea was so good that actually they've got a chance. Um, and I think the biggest learning of all of that is when you're investing early, 
the idea is still going to iterate 25 times before it becomes successful. Um, the one thing that's not going to change is the team. And so you're better off investing in a, a sensational team with what looks like a pretty mediocre idea. And if it is mediocre, then they'll work it out and they'll iterate it. And maybe it's, in our view, it's mediocre, maybe it isn't at all. So I think, um, you know, really thinking about um, backing team and people over ideas and opportunities is is, is first, first and foremost the most important thing that we've definitely refined. Um, I think the other thing that, you know, I've probably learned is that um, in the early days, I really liked founders that took my advice and acted on it. And then I took a step back and gone, hang on a second, are they building what they want to build? Or are they building what I want them to build? Yeah. And we probably had a natural aversion away from really difficult founders yeah. who felt that they knew quite a lot and we felt were quite dismissive of our, of our advice. And I think I've kind of changed my tune on that as well, yeah. which is actually I really hate backing founders now that listen to everything that I say and do exactly what I say. Um because all of a sudden I realized that I'm a crutch to them and that's not what I want to be. I just want to be able to shine some lights on a few things and then have them decide what's important and what's not. Yeah. And and those founders who are more difficult and will take bits of your advice and ignore other bits of the advice are the type of people that we want to be backing because you know we're not the only people giving them advice. There's a number of different people and they've got to kind of um, assimilate all of that and decide how, what, what move to make next. Um, but we're very, very conscious, back to your kind of first point of do we know what what good entrepreneurs look like and how have we refined that? I think we're very, very careful to not introduce bias into um, what we're doing. We know what kind of tenacity looks like. We know how people can react in uh, moments of difficulty and aversion. Um, we, we know what um, hustle looks like, but we're careful to not define, does this person have you know, six out of 10 hustle or eight out of 10 hustle um, because you're just, you're becoming too scientific about something that actually we're not sure should be so scientifically measured at the start. I remember growing up, we used to file, fill in these application forms for jobs from uni. And one of my friends used to say, they'd always ask a question like, describe a time you overcame a hurdle or what have you. And he would always say, why would I seek hurdles to overcome because I like, I like a simple life. So every time he got a question like that, he'd say, this is, I'm not going to apply for this job. Is it possible to succeed as an entrepreneur without having had to overcome something? If your life's been too comfortable, is it is it possible to turn that around, or, or do you think there needs to be some element of something there that that's uh, happened? No, I think. I mean, I think like I, I think there's a first time for everything, right? And if you've had the absolute privilege of getting through your life to your mid twenties and you've really not had to overcome very very much, if the if the hardest thing that you've had to do is you know graduate from university, then um, you know on the one hand. Um, lucky you for having such a sheltered and happy upbringing. On the other hand, well, you probably haven't really, um, you know, explored explored the world to, to you know to, to the extent that you might have done. Um, but ultimately, if you're going to go and build a business, you are going to come across these hurdles. You're going to come across them pretty quickly. Um, and and I guess going into that, you know how you you either know how you're going to react or you know you don't know how you're going to react. And if you've never really operated in a um, highly challenging um, you know, scenario where full of ambitious people, where things are really hard, then um, to be honest, you're probably more likely to not react that well than if you'd been in that for a number of years and been able to kind of modify your reactions and how you think about overcoming some of those challenges. Because we go back to that question of, you know, had this existed in 2004 or whatever, when you left uni, would you have gone down 
the antler path rather than the investment banking path, I might perceive that the investment bankers took the, the highest achievers who therefore may not have actually struggled to get through school and get through uni. So would you have become, would you have applied for the antler program, do you think, as a 21 Back in 2004? Um, no, probably not, because I think that, you know, my motivation coming out of university was um, I wanted to earn as much money as possible. So the reason for choosing investment banking, I remember me and my four um, uni housemates um, getting the the time about two months before the end of uni, getting the Times top 100 jobs and saying, okay, look, let's all go and look at this individually, apply for it, and then we'll come and regroup and decide what we all, you know, yeah. share notes on what we applied for. And it turned out we all applied for the same five same five things because they were the top five paying jobs <laughs> in, the, in the guide. Yes. Um, and actually the investment banking years gave me an amazing grounding in my career. You know, it just taught me how to work 20 hour days, yeah. which um, was pretty brutal at the time, fun, but brutal, but you know, just, just means that I've got a work ethic. That means that, you know, we can get a lot done. I don't know if it's necessarily the smartest way to work, but it's, you know, it, it's um, as we're growing a business and there's always more to be done. Um, I try and, you know, no matter how much leverage I create, I still end up wanting to do more. Um, I think that comes aligned with being like extremely passionate about what it is that you're you're doing and wanting to do it, not because someone's telling you to do it. Um, but today, look, I find it very interesting, right? I, I think about my own children and I think about school and I think about is school setting them up for the world ahead? Is school really teaching them the skills um, and, and a core education that they're going to need to survive in a world where they'll probably have a new job every single three years and agility um, is agility, curiosity um, uh, is is really important. The ability to build relationships is is really, really important. Um, and, you know, at, coming out of the US now, a, a recent poll showed that 30% of people coming out of the US now, US now are more interested in being company builders or creators than they are in um, going and getting um, corporate jobs. So the, the world is definitely changing. Um, I would definitely support my own children coming out of university now going straight into um, a startup environment. Would I want them to build one or work in one to start with? I still think that that you know people have a lot to learn before they should start building. So probably work in one rather than build one from from day one. Maybe they'll have maybe they'll be running around one of your your businesses at some point uh, before then. You you you. you mentioned a survey from the US. You've recently come back from the US. You've, you've built a business in Australia before Antler, which we'll touch on later. You've built a business in the UK. You've, you've seen these different environments. Where does Australia rank when it comes to thinking about creating businesses and innovation and, and so on? Um, we've seen huge improvements, right? We've seen the amount of funding that's been raised and the amount of funding going into startups um, growing at a very rapid rate pace here in Australia, but it's really off a very, very low base. And you go to um, the US, which is, you know, really the the the, um, the home of VC. Um, and, you know, you're, you know, one of the larger funds there, and there are thousands of funds there, one of the larger funds there would be bigger than the entire Australian VC ecosystem yeah. um, put together. Um, but I, I think my, you know, my key... My key takeaways from the trip are, are one that we're in a world that despite all of the challenges that we've had over the last few years, the fact that um, you know we've had restrictions with borders, uh, we've now got war in the world and and there's a, and there's a real trend towards um, I guess a bit more of a nationalistic approach in a number of things. 
I think when it comes to technology, I mean, the, wo- the world has never been more borderless in terms of these, these, these text don't, the technology does not know borders. It does not know languages, yeah. right? And people are now building remote teams. And I think the ability for anyone around the world, whether it be in Australia or whether it be in Bangalore or whether it be in Vietnam, have as much opportunity now to create really interesting businesses for the future as someone in the US probably had over the last 10 years. Um, you know, one of the questions that I was often getting before going to the US was, you know, golly, look at all of this money coming into VC. Are there actually enough places to invest this money? I mean, at a point of like, there's too much money, it's totally saturated. And the one thing that kind of struck me from my time in US was, wow, for for a country that is so at the forefront of innovation, there are so many things here that still need to be fixed, whether it be at a society level, whether it be within their banking industry. I mean, all of their banks are on totally different rails and infrastructure. They don't talk to each other, et cetera. Um, and, and you realize that we're, we really are in the golden age of innovation right now where um, you're able to, yeah, empower a huge global population to um, to do really incredible things in a in a time where we really feel that we need these people to be doing incredible things. And you were in the US for, was it six months, nine months, something like that? What are you trying to do here as an entrepreneur is ultimately, I guess, solve problems? Is there, um, is there a particular problem or that, you, that really sort of inspires you or is there, is there an impact that you want to make through your sort of love of entrepreneurialism? Yeah, what attracted me to joining Andrew in the first place, and I'll, I'll recall it back to a conversation that I had with a, a very close friend of mine who's um, a, a senior partner at one of the Australian, well-known Australian VC funds, was when I um, uh, decided to go down this path, I called him up and I said, um, hey, I'm really interested in getting into VC. I want to take a bit more of a portfolio approach with my time, but I don't really want to be doing what you're doing. It looks rather boring to me, you know, just reviewing pitch decks all day. Yeah. I really want to be hands-on and impactful at there at the coal face with our entrepreneurs, um, which is a little bit um, condescending and unfair of the, the contribution they make because it was probably more my lack of understanding rather than what they were, were or weren't doing. They're, they're an amazing VC firm. And um, the ability to be in a situation where you know, this year, Antler around the world will um, work with uh, work with about three thousand entrepreneurs. Um, we'll build four hundred and fifty companies that, without Antler, would likely not have existed. Some of which I will work with personally, but I spend a lot of my time working on the business and building the infrastructure out um, with my colleagues that enables that to happen. Um, and then looking forwards to 2030, you know, where we will probably have built 3,000 companies, um, we'll have probably backed um, about 7,000 founders, um, we'll have created about 250,000 jobs and about $34 billion contribution towards GDP, um, makes me absolutely on board with the mission that we're doing and the impact and the scale that we can have. And I think that there are a number of very exciting portfolio companies that we, we've got, whether they be in the climate space, whether they be in, um, you know, more deep tech kind of computer vision type businesses, whether they be more in helping um, in, in the mental health space, or we've got one that helps people with um, alcohol um, recovery and dealing with alcohol addiction. Um, I, I think there are too many to kind of fixate on. I love this one more than the other, but the wider the wider impact that we're having um, for, for for these founders, 
for their customers and the real things that they're solving for our investors is just an incredibly motivating journey. So your journey has been a sports a sports shop to global e-commerce play. Then you worked with a group called BrickX. That was an interesting stop along the way. Just want to talk briefly about what the problem that you solved there, because I thought at the time it was it was a fascinating problem. Yeah, it's, it, and it still is a fascinating problem. And and I joined up with a, a colleague of mine, Marcus Calbetza, um, and um, Marcus had some very, very interesting legal IP that he'd been working on for a couple of years and um, just happened to meet him at the right time when I landed in Australia. Um, the backstory to that is I married an Australian and, um, you know, the rest of the story, everyone can kind of work out. <laughs> We've all done that. Um, <laughs> well, not all of us, but you and I have. Um, and... Um, and and Marcus's vision was um, look, Australia, residential real estate is um, a very interesting asset class, or at least it's a a very desired asset class in this in this country. Um, but you know, the only real way to get access to it is to invest in the properties themselves. Um, there's no fractional way. There's no REITs. Um, there's no you know way that if I've only got ten grand that I can get access to that asset class. So it's really about the haves and the have-nots. Um, and, and his vision was, well, hang on, if I can buy shares on the on the stock market and have a fraction of a company, why can't I have a fraction of a, a property? Yeah. So um, we launched BrickX, which was um, a, a a huge innovation at the time because it was we were the only, um, although we were doing kind of I guess property syndication, we were the only platform out there that was able to work with. Um, retail clients. So this was available to everyone in Australia and you could start with just a hundred bucks. We'd buy a property, split it into 10,000 units within an individual trust, which we called bricks. Um, and then people could buy the individual bricks. So a million dollars of equity equated to a hundred dollars bricks. And people could then, you know, for a few thousand bucks, have a bit of Bondi, a bit of Double Bay, a bit of Mossman, a bit of Port Melbourne, a bit of Adelaide, oh, yeah. et cetera, um, and build their own property portfolios. And, and, and I guess the other kind of innovation there was we also built a... Um, a platform that enabled people when they wanted to sell their bricks um, to be able to list list them on the platform, um, offer them up for sale, and other people could come along. And the liquidity was pretty good. It would generally take someone twelve to twenty four hours to um, to to sell down their position, which was you know unheard of liquidity within within the real estate market. Um, so we built that business up. We scaled it up to about twenty thousand customers. Um, we had backing from. Um, a couple of the large the large banks, um, and then really, yeah, I guess as we can continue to go on that journey, really had a, a much um, clearer view of what it would take to make that business work to get it really to the scale that it needed to get to to work. Um, and um, you know, ultimately, the decision was made that we would sell the business rather than continue to fund it ourselves. Um, but but the 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 kind of key. Um, the key point coming out of that, which is kind of interesting when I relate it back to um, what I'm doing now with Antler, is the, the 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 mission really for me was around democratization. And it was like, how do we how do we enable a group of people that are not able to get something that we think could serve them well um, that they're excluded from? How do we how do we create a solution where they can get that? And one of the most interesting interplays, and I, I did one of the the, the sort of open courses that you offer at Antler and sort of startups, et cetera. And the thing I found most fascinating as an outsider is this interplay between, if you like, the idea and the business and then the, the need for funding and, and, and the sort of almost always you're trying to sell your idea, but at the same time you're trying to raise funding to bring that idea to fruition. So that, that interplay is quite fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think this has really been 
part of the reason that Antler is allowed to exist or exists, right, is from a funding point of view is um, it's very chicken and egg of, you know, I've got a great idea and to get my idea started, I need some funding, but who, who who's going to fund me just on the basis of me and an idea? And that pool of backers is quite slim. Now, it's definitely grown and it's definitely grown exponentially, but it's still relatively slim. And in, in markets like we've got today, um, where you know people are worried about the the public stock markets, et cetera. A lot of those kind of angel investors that um, you know are there for the good times will will disappear. And it's really important that there's consistent capital backing great people. Um, and I think that what, why the Ampler process um, really works is for us spending twelve weeks with these founders. We get really high conviction on the people. And we actually know the idea, I, mean, I said it before, but we know the idea that they come up with the first idea is not going to work. We don't know what's going to work, but it's the first point on their journey. And so where you can really validate exceptional people who are going to go on that journey, um, you know, we can get really high conviction in giving them a relatively small amount of money to get started and really remove that chicken and egg um, you know, conundrum. So what I find, I guess, infectious talking to you and 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 it's just this, the enthusiasm, the problem solving, the vision, et cetera, et cetera. But how, for, for let's say for the realists out there, how, how do you deal with failure or the, or the risks of failure? Um, I mean, the risks are real, right? But I, I would say in this, I, I think first of all, at a personal level, and I realize that I'm built in a slightly different, in, in, in a particular way, not every, this will resonate, this will not necessarily resonate with everyone. But I think with, for people that have, potentially got the skills, the desire, and the drive to go and build something. And these are the people that are in jobs where, um, you know, they seemingly look like they're doing quite well. Their LinkedIn profile looks amazing, but they're sat at work going, I wonder what else I could do. How could I do more? I'm yearning to have more impact. I think in this day and age where you can quit your job and you can go and try, and if you're successful, then that's fantastic. But if you fail, you're probably more valuable to the corporate world or wherever it is that you came from for that experience that you've been on, You know how agile you've been, the broader perspectives that you'll have. And that the, there really is no, like the biggest risk that I think some, or the, the biggest um, thing that I think is a shame is if people don't take that risk, if they can afford to do it, their personal circumstances, their family situation, et cetera, allows them um, allows them to do it. So I think number one, I think that, um, yes, failure will happen. It will happen a lot. Yeah. We know it happens a lot. Um, but, um, you know, the, 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 the Americans are very good for what they call celebrating failure, but I genuinely think that people come out of it, um, better for it. And I, I spoke with an entrepreneur just this morning who has left her business. She was with it for two years. Um, they found there was misalignment amongst the founders, um, and the business was never going to work if the two of them were at the helm and misaligned. So she decided to step back. Um, and sh while she said that that wasn't ultimately what she would have um, intended um, the outcome to be, she's incredibly proud of her experience. She's incredibly grateful for the experience that she's had. She believes that she can do anything in the world now. Yeah. Um, and is a much stronger person for it and has a whole new set of skill sets and she's you know primed for the next thing that she does. So I, I think failure is hard. Um, I think a lot of people will try and avoid um, failure, but you know I probably have a, a pretty unsympathetic approach to that. If if you're not 
you know, if you're not setting yourself up in a situation where you might fail, you're probably not trying hard enough. Yeah. Sounds like great advice and um, probably a good place to stop. Look, I've always admired um, your tenacity and I've always enjoyed hearing the stories along along your journey. And I think think with Antler, um, there are so many great stories coming out of it that the, the future looks like a, a very exciting journey for you. So Anthony, thanks so much for joining the show. I hope the listeners appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.